Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 132, Escalating Violence. Last episode, we discussed Constantine VII's first four years as sole emperor. His failure to retake Crete was in part offset by the capture of Theodosiopolis in the east. And it's in the east where we will spend today's show. The Vasilevs was interested in peace. The fall of the old Roman capital of Armenia gave the empire a frontier that it could live with. Unfortunately, though, the emir of Aleppo, Seyf could not. His authority rested on his leadership of the jihad, and so war between Roman and Arab forces was set to continue. We, therefore, need to know a little more about the leadership on the Byzantine side. So it's time to welcome back the Focus clan. The origins of the family have been much debated, with Roman, Armenian, and Arab ancestors all suggested. What we know for sure is that they became major landowners in Cappadocia, rose to command positions in the army, and considered themselves to be as Roman as anyone. Uh, during the end of the century, I talked about the text On Skirmishing. This is the military manual which Nicephorus Phocas will commission once he's in charge of the army. It was one of the sources for the House of War episode, where I described a theoretical ambush on an Arab raiding party. In it, the author sets out the tactics which should be used to combat enemy forces raiding Anatolia. One of the comments in this work is that Armenian soldiers are inadequate. The author claims that they are generally lazy and unreliable and need to be monitored if given important responsibilities. This racial profiling is entirely in keeping with traditional Roman snobbery. So we don't get a sense that the Focards, as the leading magnate family on the Eastern Front, had an entirely different outlook from those back in Constantinople. Given that they had plentiful lands and herds to protect, it's no surprise that the family rose to dominate the eastern armies. They had a vested interest in gaining power and marshalling the local people to defend their assets. The Focards trained their sons to ride and lead, local boys were recruited to form their retinues, 
and the first Focus Stratikos appeared in the historical record in 872. It was that man's son, named Nicephorus, who became the empire's senior commander in the reign of Leo VI. His distinguished service against the Arabs and in Italy won high praise from the wise emperor who wrote about him in his Tactica. Nicephorus had two sons, Leo and Bardas. Leo inherited his father's role as domestic of the Scoli, but as you know was defeated in battle by Simeon of Bulgaria. He then tried to seize the throne, but was outmaneuvered by Admiral of the Fleet Romanus Le Capinos. Leo was seized and blinded, and then died in obscurity. His brother Bardas survived, though, and would continue to serve in the Empire's armies. We saw him resisting the Rus raid in 940. Once Constantine VII became sole ruler, he recalled Bardas to become his new domestic, restoring the familial partnership which their fathers had shared. One slight problem, though, was that Bardas was by now in his 60s, not an ideal age for the man charged with commanding Byzantine forces across the length of the Eastern Front. However, Bardas would not be discharging his duties alone. He had three capable sons to help him. His eldest, Nicephorus, yes, that Nicephorus, became the Stratikos of the Anatolikon. Second son Leo took charge of Cappadocia, and his youngest boy Constantine led in Seleucia. The general had also married sensibly. He'd wedded a lady from the Maleinos clan, another magnate family whose base was in neighbouring Charcianum. The men of that house were therefore eager to gain positions under Bardas's regime. He'd also married one of his daughters into the house of Corcuas, a sensible move during John's 20-year period at the top. That union had brought forth a precocious young officer that we know as John Zimiskis. John's talents were currently being used in the new themes growing up around Melatine. So despite his advancing years, Bardas was surrounded by loyal allies, all keen for advancement under the new regime. This assembled talent was about to be put to the test by Saif ad -Dola. In 948, the year before the Cretan expedition, Roman forces swarmed over the frontiers and into Syria. Saif assembled his army and drove them off without too much difficulty, However, the invasion had been something of a distraction. In the rear of the attacking force, Leo Focus led his troops to Adata, sacked it, and demolished its defences. For those who haven't looked at the map, Adata was one of the key fortresses guarding the Euphrates River. It was just south of Melitene, and like neighbouring Germanicaea and Samosata, was now very vulnerable to Byzantine attack. The following year, Saif was keen for revenge, especially when he heard that an attack on Crete was being organised. But as I said last week, Constantine had left the eastern defences largely intact. 
safe road across the mountains into the theme of Lycandos, but was met with stiffer resistance than he'd expected and was pushed back. With safe retreating, the Byzantines advanced all along the line. One detachment reached and sacked Germanicaea, while Leo Focus himself marched all the way to Antioch, defeating one of Safe's sub-commanders on the way. To complete this triptych of defeats, Safe rallied his men for another assault in 950. He was encouraged by news of the Cretan disaster and demanded that the Emir of Tarsus join the war effort. Reinforced by men from Cilicia, Safe led the largest army he'd ever taken west into Anatolia. This time, things would be different. Once they reached Lycandus, the Hamdanid forces let loose, ravaging the land and swatting resistance aside. They pushed northwest into Charsianum, doing serious damage in that theme too. Meanwhile, Bardus was busy assembling a force that could confront them in the field. Eventually, the two sides met in the valley of the Lycus River, in the Armeniacon theme. As he was to repeatedly prove, when it came to pitched battles, Safe was a dangerous man. Bardus was outmaneuvered and outgunned. The Romans routed, but Safe was wise enough not to pursue. The sword of the dynasty basked in the glow of victory on enemy soil. His soldiers toasted their triumph, gathered their prisoners and booty, and began the, by now, long march home. Several scholars believe that On Skirmishing, commissioned by Nicephorus, was largely modelled on the work of his brother Leo. As Saif's considerable force made its way home, through the narrow mountain passes, Leo put into effect plans which we can still read about a thousand years later. Leo's men had not been at the Battle of the Lycus. Instead, they were now ahead of the Arab force, tracking their movements. Leo's scouts ascended the mountain peaks and watched as the large, slow-moving army snaked its way toward home. Once they'd worked out the route that the Arabs were taking, one that Leo knew well, an ambush was agreed. The Stratikos raced ahead and found the perfect narrow defile on the road between Lycandus and Germanicia. His men began cutting down trees and rolling boulders into concealed spots. Then they hid themselves and waited in silence. When Saif's army arrived, they had to thin out their line as they entered the narrow pass. Of course, their best scouts went ahead with the vanguard and checked for any trouble. Seeing none, they trotted past to check the rest of the road. Once they were out of sight, Leo's men sprang forward and pushed the boulders and tree trunks onto the road, at least partially blocking the path. As the rest of Saif's army now arrived, it was the Battle of Pliska all over again. At first there was anxiety, then panic. Everyone was looking up at the trees on each side of the road, fearing the worst. Rumour spread back along the line, spreading its toxicity as each unit came to a halt 
wondering why the column had stopped, and then drawing their own conclusions. When Leo's men did appear, yelling and attacking the flanks of the front line, all was chaos. As ever in these situations, it's the running away which causes the damage. Safe's men outnumbered Leo's easily, but the fear of being trapped overwhelms the mind. Men ran headlong into the barricades, stumbling and crashing into one another, trampling their comrades to death. Horses bolted, captive villagers hastened to free themselves. Soldiers ran in every direction, and those who turned their backs on the Byzantines were cut down. Safe himself struggled to escape with his life, and needless to say, all the booty he'd captured was abandoned on the road. Medieval statistics are notably hard to rely on, but one source claims that a quarter of Saif's army were lost in the fighting. If that's even close to accurate, it would have been a devastating defeat. More telling for us is the name which an Arab historian used to describe this occasion, dubbing it the Dreadful Expedition. Three campaigns, three defeats. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, by surrendering control of the mountain passes, Saif doomed himself to this fate. Even when he was strong enough to rout the Romans on their own turf, he still had to make it back through their territory. That was the key change over the past century. In the House of War episode, I described to you a situation where the Romans ambushed a small Arab raiding party leaving Anatolia through the Cilician Gates. That scenario was pretty rare before the 860s, because it was the Caliphate who controlled the mountains. For the Byzantines to execute a successful ambush would take a very fortuitous set of circumstances. But now, a hundred years later, the Romans and their Armenian allies controlled the frontier. And by making the mountains their own, the Byzantines had secured a frightening advantage over anyone daring to invade. At this point, Constantine again offered peace terms to the emir. But understandably, Saif's reputation had been damaged. To accept peace now would have undermined his authority. No, he had to return to the drawing board and begin again. Saif decided that he needed to reconstruct the line of fortifications which guarded his side of the mountains before he could continue campaigning in Byzantium. This would at least give him friendly bases from which to operate and better scouting of the enemy. He spent 951 gathering supplies and recruiting masons, and then in 952 he dispatched them to Germanicaea, Adata and Samosata. Each was to receive new walls and ditches, along with fresh garrisons. Bardas Focus decided to lead an army in person to disrupt these plans. But Saif was well prepared. When the domestic appeared, the Hamdanid forces repulsed him decisively. This was a cause for concern. Those fortresses had been systematically destroyed over the past decade, Bardas didn't want that work to be undone. 
He gathered more men and marched on Germanicaea later in the same year. Again, he and Safe met in pitched battle. The fighting became fierce with heavy casualties on both sides. However, it was the Hamdanid army that emerged victorious. The enemy cavalry broke through the Byzantine line and targeted the domestic himself. Bardas was wounded in the melee. Apparently he took a nasty blow to the head, which would leave him with a permanent scar. His army routed, and he only survived that day due to the loyalty and bravery of his retainers. Many gave up their lives so that the aging Bardas could be shepherded back to safety. This triumph emboldened Safe. Knowing that his success would only invite further Roman attacks, he decided to surprise them by launching an unexpected raid early in 953. During that campaign, he fell upon the troops of Constantine Phocus, Bardas's youngest boy, and captured him alive. Safe's popularity reached new heights when he arrived back in Aleppo that spring, depositing the domestic son in jail. But not long afterwards, Constantine Phocus died. The Arabs claimed that it was from natural causes, and that his body was given to the local Christians for burial. Understandably, though, the Romans suspected foul play, and in his grief, Bardas executed several of his senior Muslim prisoners in retaliation. On both sides of the border, this was a significant moment. Perhaps the best way of illustrating the situation is to tell you that upon learning of Constantine's imprisonment, the Emir of Tarsus again asked Saif to offer peace to the Romans. He knew that escalating this war into a blood feud would inevitably lead to attacks on Cilicia. His position was vulnerable, and in Saif's great coup, he saw no good news. In Constantinople, too, the emperor must have sighed heavily on hearing the news that his domestic son had been captured by the enemy. Many in the palace had read dispatches from the front and had their view confirmed that peace was the only way forward. Saif had defeated Bardas in battle three times now. Clearly the Arabs were still a dangerous force. More conflict will only bring more defeat. But now? Now honour demanded campaigns of vengeance. The Focus family had suffered a dishonour in seeing their youngest son captured. The Emperor knew that he could not reasonably expect them to swallow this and negotiate for peace. Historian Mark Witto comments that the capture of Constantine Focus led to an escalating level of violence that it was difficult to get out of without politically damaging loss of face. Remember that on the other side of the line, Saif was making great political capital out of his success. You can imagine how his reputation would have been enhanced amongst the average Muslims of the region. All they had known for the past half century was political disintegration and the worrying news that the Christians were advancing in the borderlands. Just as the Orthodox saw defeat as a sign from God, 
the Muslims of Syria began to wonder what they were being punished for when Melitene fell. Now it seemed safe was pleasing to God's eyes, and all would be right again. In 954, the patched-up Bardas made one last attempt to stop Safe from finishing his refurbishment of the border defences. He was again defeated. Safe completed his project and installed troops along the line. Back on the Bosphorus, the Vasilevs decided that time had come for a change. If Safe was going to continue to prosecute this war, then the Romans would have to target his power base. They had spent decades on the capture of Melitene, and they weren't going to risk losing it by allowing Safe to stand against them. In addition, Bardas's defeats were tarnishing the emperor's reputation, which was still recovering from the failure to retake Crete. In order to take the war to Aleppo, more resources were needed, and a new strategy had to be devised, and that meant new leadership. Bardas, now well into his seventies, was ushered into retirement. He was to be replaced as domestic by his eldest son, Nicephorus. Nikiforus Phocas, or Nicephorus Phocas as I will call him, is of course one of the most memorable characters from all of Byzantine history. A ruthlessly efficient general who will personally command many of the great conquests of the next two decades. A much later story claims that the Porphyrogenitos called Nicephorus before him and asked why Safe was getting the better of Roman forces. The Stratichos bluntly answered that the reason was his father was old and content to grow rich from his position, while the emperor knew nothing of military organization. Though clearly apocryphal, the ring of truth clings to it because of how swiftly Roman fortunes changed once Nicephorus became domestic. The organization and coordination of forces on the frontier rapidly improved with spectacular results. But before we can get into the story of Byzantine victory, it's about time we went into detail about the tactics of the army. So next week, it's the episode that some of you have been waiting a long time for. A deep dive into the changes in the military as the Romans moved from the back foot onto the front for the first time in centuries. For now, let's go to the capital and chart a few changes in personnel. In 956, the Patriarch... Theophylact Lecapinos passed away. As you may remember, Romanus's youngest legitimate son had been a frivolous archbishop, far more interested in horses than heresy. Living up to his reputation, he died after a riding accident. The emperor decided to replace the dilettante with a real man of God, so he selected an outstandingly pious monk named Polyoctos. He was a eunuch who'd lived at the capital all of his life and was known for his wise advice. It was an understandable choice given his predecessor had been so clearly inappropriate. However, the appointment perhaps reveals Constantine's naivety, 
Having missed out on the realities of politics for so long, he didn't seem to anticipate how uncomfortable life could be with an outspoken prelate. Polyuctus was indeed outstandingly pious, and not backward about coming forward. He ruffled feathers immediately by publicly condemning the wealth of certain members of the court, apparently both the Empress Helena and her brother Basil were named and shamed, and drawing comparisons with John Chrysostom, Polyuctus went further by demanding that the patriarch Euthymius have his name reinstated in church memory. Euthymius had been involved in the whole crisis of Leo VI's fourth marriage, an issue that, needless to say, the emperor did not want to revisit. Better news came the next year, when the Rus princess Olga made a special visit to Constantinople and converted to Christianity. Olga had recently been widowed and was acting as regent for her son Sviatoslav, as you know from many similar circumstances on this podcast, that was a highly vulnerable time. Given that the trading relationship with Byzantium was vital to Kiev's prosperity, we can assume this mission was an attempt to cement good ties and bolster her prestige at the same time. The conversion was now part and parcel of dealing with the Romans. Olga would patronize a church back in Kiev, but it did not lead to the conversion of her people, uh, nor even of her own son, who we will be hearing more from. Also during this time, the emperor's son, Romanus II, got married. Like some of his imperial predecessors, the young prince fell in love with an unsuitable woman. Allegedly a tavern owner's daughter, though that may just be a slur. As you know, Basil and Leo had fallen out over a similar issue, as had Irene and Constantine the Sixth. Given his own background, it's perhaps not surprising that the Porphyrogenitos was more lenient with his own son. He decided not to stand in his way, and Romanus married the girl in 956. Warren Treadgold says the bride took the name of Leo VI's first wife, Saint Theophano, whom she in no way resembled. The emperor's laissez-faire approach was rewarded handsomely when Theophano gave birth to a healthy baby boy two years later. Doubtless the emperor had a hand in the naming. His own son had been forced to bear the moniker of the head of the Lecapinae household, whereas this boy would be named Basil, after the founder of the Macedonian dynasty. And yes, this is the Basil, Basil II. He was followed, two years later, by another boy, Constantine, who would grow up to become Constantine VIII. That's it for today. Thanks again to all of you who've bought the fundraising episode, and especially those who gave extra. I'm hugely grateful, and so far it's all good news. Next time, we investigate the army, which Nicephorus will recruit to march over the mountains and destroy the armies of Jihad for good.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 